Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, we had Laura Walton on the show. She is the head of the branch of CUPE that is representing the education workers who, as you know, are in negotiations right now with the provincial government, uh, are taking a strike vote at the end of this month, which is standard operating procedure, according to her even yesterday, at looking for big pay increases. I mean... She says, and you know, it's true. She says, we're looking for $3 and 25 cents an hour. Uh, that works out on average to 11.7%, which, you know, the one doesn't sound like so much. The other sounds like an awful lot. And we're talking about over multiple years. So a three-year deal, you're talking 35% pay increase. Hmm. Well, that is their position based on the fact that she says, look, these are low paid workers who deserve better, who haven't been getting raises over the last number of years, who worked through COVID, who held things together, who kept the schools clean and the computers on for Zoom and everything else so schools could go. Look, nothing that she said is wrong. They are valuable people. They are valuable people, valuable employees. But 35%? Well, I said today, let's get the other side of this because I bet there is another side and I know who might voice the other side. His name is Jay Goldberg. He's the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation who joins us now. Jay, how are you today? Very well. Great to be with you. Well, what do you think about 35% increase over three years for education workers? Well, look, uh, the typical teacher here in Ontario makes $91,000. On average, you compare that to Quebec where it's $67,000, BC where it's $86,000. And so that's a lot more than the typical Ontarian who's making $54,000 a year. Uh, And, you know, obviously we're in a period of of inflation, cost of living adjustment. But when you have teachers that are already making $35,000 more than the typical Ontarian, uh, and we have a deficit that's the largest it's been in the history of Ontario, uh, you know, that's that's a tough sell. What about the education? So the teachers are also going to be coming up and and we'll get to that in a second because I think clearly this contract is going to be the trailblazer. Whatever happens here, all the other public sector unions are going to be looking at this. But what about those who are the janitors and the IT people and others who aren't paid as high as teachers? And, you know, they they say they are really, really underpaid. Why why wouldn't we say you deserve a 35% raise over three years? Well, I think that uh, we have to look at the province's financial situation. The situation is that uh, the province is in a very bad place. We've got a deficit of $20 billion. Uh, we're spending more on debt interest and post-secondary education in this province. And so while you want to make sure that people are being paid uh, a fair wage, I think the Ford government has taken the approach over the past four years by instituting a, a wage cap on those who work for the government. Uh, that, um, you know, it has to be limited because the average salary for those who are working for government and whether we're talking teachers, whether we're talking uh, any category, on average, those who work for the government make 10% more than those who don't. Uh, And so I I do think it's, uh, you know, important to recognize that 35% is a heck of a lot when we're all being squeezed by a cost of living crisis. That's just going to mean either more taxes or even more debt, and as their interest rates are going up, it's going to be completely unsustainable. So I, I think we need to have a, a reasonable and rational conversation, but I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, this negotiation is going to 
set the table for every other negotiation that's going to come up. And so what, what the government does here will absolutely influence what happens in negotiations with teachers and other groups. And I think that's why it's so important uh, that they agree to something that's reasonable. You said the word fair wage. Let's play the definition game, which I know is always interesting when we do this with government stuff, because I remember when the federal government talked about, you know, kept talking about the middle class and even built a ministry of the middle class and the minister couldn't define the middle class. So definitions are always tricky, but you said fair wage. Define fair wage. Well, obviously a fair wage, uh, at least in my view, is going to differ tremendously based on where you are in the province. Uh, the cost of housing, the cost of uh, transportation, all of these things are very different. If you're looking at Toronto, uh, then you're looking at Thunder Bay. And so uh, it's difficult to put it on. But, but what I would say uh, is that um, these individuals that are working for the government, um, you know, uh, they, they're saying they work in schools, that they're underpaid. Uh, well, the reality is that... Um, if, if anyone is being so underpaid, uh, they can go ahead and look for jobs that are in the private sector where we have record job openings across all kinds of fields. And so if, if pay is, uh, you know, so unfair that it's not possible to stay in the job, then I think uh, certainly you can look to the job market. Uh, yeah, that, that's that, that's a bit of a zing. I mean, it's true that there are so many jobs in the private sector that are available. So, I mean, you're not wrong, but I, I, I would think that probably anybody who holds one of these jobs would argue, well, why should I have to leave my job? You should just reward me. You should honor me. You should treat me with, res- with the respect that my job deserves. And that means higher pay. Well, that may be a point, but uh, look, if people who are not in government are not seeing pay raises or being squeezed by inflation and the cost of living crisis, we cannot have a tale of two Ontarios. You cannot have a case where you have people that are being paid by the government getting all kinds of ginormous raises, and you're talking about 35% raises, while people in the private sector are not getting raises, they're getting squeezed by inflation and cost of living, uh, and we cannot be living in two different uh, scenarios here. And so I think absolutely we have to look rationally at this and we have to say, what is the trend in broader society? Exactly where are these wages compared to comparable workers in the private sector? And then you need to have a conversation. But there is no one in the private sector that's going to their boss and saying, I need a 35% raise over the next three years. Uh, frankly, okay, what if we, what if we said... That. Uh, Jay, what if I, what if, okay, that's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen. That's a starting point for negotiation. What if instead of 35%, we said 12%, so it's 4% a year or even 10%. Is that reasonable or is that still a problem? Well, I, again, I think it depends on uh, the the situation. I think it depends on uh, the job, but I also do think that, as you said before, this is absolutely going to set the stage for other negotiations. And so I think the government needs to have a general um, decision, thought process, understanding of where public sector salaries, government worker salaries are going to go in the next four years. Obviously, there was a decision made four years ago that a wage cap should be put in place, that it should be kept to 1%. Now, granted, we have higher inflation now, the cost of living has gone higher, and so you know, there's a conversation to be had about exactly where we want to go. Um, but certainly those who work for the government make more than those who don't. Uh, and any kind of request at 35%, uh, it's unrealistic. And before the government commits in this stage to 
whatever kind of proposal uh, that they're going to barter back and forth with, I think the government has to keep very much in mind that whatever happens here is going to set the stage for negotiations with teachers who are paid by far the highest in the country and the highest in North America and other workers for the government. And so that all has to be very much kept in mind. It is. uh, Look, I think we're going to be talking about this for a while because I don't think either side is going to capitulate, honestly. And I think we're going to be heading towards, I hate to say it. I mean, I, I can't even fathom that after the two years or whatever it is that our students have been messed up through school, I can't even fathom the idea that we might have a closing of schools for a labor stoppage. But I don't, I honestly, I don't see either side really giving in here. So we'll find out. Uh, Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks, Jay. Always appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, um, and anyone out there disagree? Anyone think that one side or the other is just going to say, all right, here you go. Yeah, we'll give you, we'll give you 8%. You think that's going to happen from the government? We'll give you 5% a year for three years. We'll give you 15%. You, you, you think that's going to happen? Knowing, knowing, as Jay just said, that every other public service union that's been waiting for increases will look at this and go, well, they got 15% over three. We're getting 15 that's not going to happen. I'd be, well, maybe it will, but I'd be shocked. I'd be more than shocked. And on the flip side, do you see a likelihood that the education workers are going to say, all right, we'll take the 1.25% you're offering. Do, do, Do you really see that likelihood happening? So where's the, where's the alternative here? Where's the end game? You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. How important would you say music is in your life in general? Not that you have to listen to it 24 hours a day, but how important would you say music is to your mental well-being, to your emotional stability? I'll tell you why I asked this question. There was a poll that was done in England, in Britain. 85.7% of British people say that music is vital to maintaining their mental health. 85.7%. Now, I don't know what the numbers are in Canada. This poll wasn't done here. Would it be crazy to think that we would be similar? I don't think so. I think it may not be 85.7. It might be 82. It might be 83, but I wouldn't think it's massively different. Let me bring in Eric Alper. He is a music writer. He's a music publicist. He's a music, he does everything in the music business. So he should be an expert on the mental health benefits or not of the music world. Uh, Eric, how are you today? I'm good. Who are these people who don't listen to music 24 hours a day? I, yeah, well, I don't know anybody like that. No, I know even in the background right now, you've got one ear pod in right now listening just <laughs> to, you know, to keep yeah, it going. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In the other ear. What do you, does this surprise you that the number would be this high that 85% say their mental health depends on music? The, the actual study doesn't surprise me because we've known for a long time that music enhances intelligence and focus. It improves mental health as well as self-esteem and confidence. Uh, music can be used to relax and to boost and lift our mood. What's interesting is I want to see that same study five years down the road because I think people tended to put more of a importance 
um, on music in the last two, two and a half years. One, because it got mostly taken away from us when it comes down to live music. So we were really only stuck with recorded music because nobody could tour. Um, but two, I think music streaming services and music in vinyl and cassettes and CDs or whatever, however many people want to listen to it, um, probably have the same satisfaction level right now as television and movie streaming services, where if it wasn't for those two aspects of my life, I probably would have jumped out a window like in the last two and a half years. There was nothing to be done. Where do you, uh, and everyone listening, answer the same question to yourself, but I'm going to ask Eric, where do you listen to music generally most? Where, um, is there a place? In front of the computer, working 18 hours a day through okay. music streaming services or finding my two radio stations that I go back and forth on. So it's only, I mean... I don't drive an hour to work anymore, so that that commute is done. So it's really a a background situation while I'm working. Yeah, I mean, mine, weirdly, uh, one of the places where I now have music on all the time, I bought a, a really good shower speaker, and my showers have become way longer because now, <laughs> now you get onto a good song and you're done, but it's like, yeah, but I got to wait for this song to end, and then another one starts, and uh, it's a good thing we just got a new hot water heater because it's, you know, we're, we're wearing it out already, but well, th there are certain... Who stomach needed washing so much, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, but it's just, there are certain... It, 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 you catch yourself, even my point was not just that, I, you know, I'm listening in the shower, but the point was you, you realize at times that that song is playing and you do not want it then and you feel good about it. And you don't necessarily think about it all the time. I don't think, you know, I want to play that song because it makes me feel good. It catches you by surprise and then you realize it. There's times when on Sundays, when I'm doing a lot of grunt work, um, in, in the in on on the music side, where I, I put on the exact same album every single Sunday because it gets me in the mood of and focus. Um, but realistically, you know, w w everything changed with the Walkman back in the day because right. the Walkman was the, really the first time that we could actually take music with us as opposed to the the listening. Um, room that we had where we all had to make plans and listen to that vinyl record. There were, you know, listening parties on Saturday night where all you would really do is listen to music. But once you got to take it with you, it became part of the experience. And that led to iTunes and digital. And that leads to, you know, a couple of steps down the road in between, obviously. But it leads to music streaming services where you can now listen on your phones. And I think yes, that's where. But. That yes, but lack of emotional attachment gets attached to it. Yes, but and I say this because that that is all good, but you know that this poll also says over half the people polled said music is a reason for their closest friendship, and the one thing that Walkman didn't we call them Walkman? I don't know, but Walkmans, Walkmen, um, and then on and on have done. It used to be that you would be listening to a ghetto blaster together. There was a much more communal part of music once upon a time. And you would hang out then if you were back in the eighties, if you were one of those people who was into echo and the bunny men, you and your little niche would hang out together. And if you were into ACDC, you'd be with that. Not so much now because you don't find your friends and find your commonalities in music the way you did because of that. I'm wondering, you know, and that's an excellent point. I'm wondering, is that the cause 
or is it the fact that we don't have to share our music anymore? And that led to people, I'm sure listening, who would probably scream at the radio saying, I listen to Black Sabbath and Billie Eilish, or I listen to, you know, Pink and also Bruce Springsteen. And it was those meshing of the musical styles. Once we didn't get to share with anybody, that's where the whole guilty pleasure term kind of comes from from with yeah, that era yeah. of like I'm not going to tell anybody I'm listening to ABBA and then you realize wait a second what's wrong with ABBA there's nothing wrong with it so it, it's interesting that, that that mesh of different styles and having everything all at our fingertips I'm wondering if that's if that broke down that elitist or that class thing for us yeah, uh, our friend uh, Alan Cross who we have uh, we have on occasionally and talk to yeah, um, great uh, he has a poll out right now that says, have you ever judged someone primarily by their taste in music? And you know what? I think we would all, if we were honest, say, yeah, of course we have. For that exact reason you just said, because someone who listened to something was a freak or an idiot, or I hate that music, or we, we you know, if they, if they listen to Ozzy Osbourne and we're, you know, we go, oh, okay, they're, you know, stay away from them or whatever. Yeah. We, of course we have judged people by the music that they listen to. Of course we have. Yeah, I think we we silently judge people all day long, um, and so music kind of blends into it. We judge people on a Facebook post or on a tweet or or what they're wearing or what they're dressing, and music absolutely is is a big part of it. Um, and it's interesting because I've always looked at that from the outside. I, I you know I, I was one of those those few people that did actually get to merge with a whole bunch of different kind of group, social groups in high school um, because I kind of dug all sorts of music. I may not understand all of it, but I didn't hold it against anybody. But it's funny, like my wife likes completely different music than I. I, mm. I her music, I would never, ever put on, but I certainly don't mind it. And my daughter, eh, you know, she's, she's a lost cause. She's already into the pop world. <laughs> but I go back to this poll that starts 85% of yeah. Brit- British people say music is vital to their mental health. I also believe, and we got to run, I also believe part of that is not just listening to the music. It's what we're getting around to in a circle here. Music leads you to your community and we've been absent our community for a long time because of COVID now. That communal thing, I, I was talking yesterday on the show about going down to the Cactus Festival on the weekend and seeing David Wilcox. Tons of people around. It's just, it's something we've missed. Everyone together with the same taste in music, all hanging out, having a great time. That's something we've missed. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great point that you make to to bring it full circle. It, it's something where, you know, if, um, you know, if anybody is struggling with mental health, yes, the psychology is there. Yes, the the medicine is there. Um, music has always been a healing tool, and it's one of those things where uh, if it wasn't for music in the last like two years, and artists making it, um, you know, my happiness and my mental health would have would have gone very very low compared to what it is now. Mm. Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for taking some time today. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow will mark two months until the municipal election. It's October 20th, October 24th, not 20 the 4th. That's a new language. I don't know what I'm doing. October 24th is the municipal election. So two months tomorrow. And one of the questions that a lot of people are having about this already as we start into this one is, what is this election about besides an exercise of democracy, which is fine by itself, but the last election... 100% very clearly was about the LRT. 
And the election before that, or maybe it was two ago, I've lost track, was very much about the stadium where Tim Hortons Field ultimately was going to end up. There often is an overriding issue that drives the campaign. What is the camp? What is the issue in this election? Larry Diani is a former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is a commentator now with Cable 14. He does all kinds of stuff. He's on here regularly. We love having him. Mr. Mayor, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, Scott. I'm very, very pleased to be with you as always. What is, okay, so as I say, we had the, the LRT in the last election, unquestionably, undoubtedly, it was the question, it was the thing. There was really nothing else anyone talked about last election. And the stadium was before that where it was the thing. What do you think is the thing, if there is one, that's going to be at the center of this mayoral race? Well, I know what what some of the important themes should be, but you're right uh, in your assessment. Uh, unlike uh, previous elections where there was always an issue that seemed to polarize uh, the community and drove votes one way or the other, and became the ballot box question. Uh, this one doesn't have any. Um, it, it was being primed by certainly some community groups as a change election, and that was going to be the ballot box question. How can we affect change in our municipal governance? But because fully seven incumbents have decided to retire from politics and not run again, including the mayor, that change has already happened. We're going to get seven new faces, including at the very top. So that no longer, in my mind, is the driving force behind uh, people uh, getting out to vote. Um, and um, what is getting, I think, we'll, we'll see, because it's still early days. It's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, you know, Labor Day yet, and typically people don't pay a lot of attention until after Labor Day, they're still in summer mode. But there are some important themes that we have spoken about in, in, the, uh, in the community that should be driving uh, people to, to the ballot box. First of all... Okay, before, before we get into those, just yeah. hold one sec, because I want to let you, yeah. I want to hear what you say about those. I really do. But I want to go to change just for a second before we lose that one. Okay, yep. When, when I know that we've heard that phrase, we want to change election... And you're right that part of that was we want to get rid of people on council that have been there a while or that we don't like or that we disagree with or whatever else. That word change, though, does it apply beyond that? When, when people are talking about I want change, do they just want different faces or do you think it includes I want a completely different political philosophy? I want to make it a completely progressive council or I want a completely conservative council does it is it just the faces or is it the overriding way things are done so you know the the change theme um happens every election and this one it was amplified as i said by community groups and people who wanted to see uh, current councillors out uh and uh, you know they've been beating that change drum forever but it's always been there however the reality is that when people go to vote they want change, but they, they elect the same people. Uh, uh, typically, uh, most of the incumbents get elected again. And so I don't think people really think deeply, at least at the municipal level, or people expect good, you know, good government, uh, orderly government, um, uh, you know, uh, manageable taxes, 
uh, you know, clear the snow in the wintertime, cut the grass, cut the grass in the, uh, uh, in the summertime, make sure the sports fields are there. So people like, uh, you know, fix the roads, get the potholes under control. People like meat and potatoes, delivery of services. I don't think at the municipal level that ideology rules the day, quite frankly, as it does in the federal and provincial levels where, in fact, uh, you have different parties with different ideologies running for election, and there forces you to either be center, left, or right. At the municipal level, it really isn't the case. Hey, there are some exceptions, though, here in Hamilton, and we, we have seen some of these change artists, or at least uh, advocates. Um, they are predominantly on the progressive side. Some would say on the far left. And, um, and driving, you know, what to them is important for a city. Uh, and those policies would all be, all, almost all be on the left side of, of the political spectrum and the ideology that that represents. That's, that's what people have been beating the drum about change uh, for certainly the last number of years, intensified over this last year because the election was coming. And, um, and uh, you know, there's even, they will never admit it, but I think there's an informal slate of these candidates in almost every ward. I don't think every ward, but almost every ward that represents that left-of-center philosophy where they want to be kind to encampments, where they want to build little homes in the downtown for the dispossessed, uh, where they want to focus on bike trails and, uh, uh, and um, uh, you know, restrict traffic, uh, you know, go into road diets, all of, all of that stuff that progressives really enjoy talking about. And there are some people who are running for council that are going to embrace that. And if they get elected, you're going to see a lot of that, a lot more of that in, in, the, in the city of Hamilton. But the general public that isn't paying the kind of attention that these advocates uh, have been paying to those issues, as I said, they just want orderly government, you know, decent taxes, don't charge me for services uh, that I don't have, be transparent. Uh, and I'm talking about the sewer gate issue, which is also dissipated, I think, in terms of the anger that was there initially. Uh, and they're going to elect people based on what they think um, are going to be candidates that will deliver those meat and potatoes kinds of issues. The mayoralty okay. is a different story. The mayoralty is a different story because that'll attract all of the attention. And you've got people that uh, running that, that the public knows, that Hamiltonians know. And I'm talking about Bob Rotina, who is a bit of a brand in the city, has, run, uh, has been mayor before, has been an MP and been on radio for many, many years. And and people know Bob. The brand has faded a little bit because he's been out of the spotlight for a while, but still will command attention. And I think he's going to run a serious campaign this time. He's put out a platform already. I mean, when he won the mayoralty, people asked him about the platform, and he said, ah, platform, schmat form. This <laughs> time he actually has a platform, and that's kind of an interesting one. I read it the other night. And then you've got Andrea Horvath, who's a known quantity. People know her by her first name. Um, I think the race is hers to lose because she's a popular Hamiltonian, has been leader, and yes, ideologically on the left in the NDP party. But the mayoralty demands that you be practical. And I think people will recognize that she cares about the community. She's uh, had 
political experience at the local and provincial levels. And I think uh, she's a woman, and I think that's going to be good uh, for her in this campaign. And I think she's going to attract some attention. And, and as I say, probably the race is hers to lose. And then there's Keenan Loomis. Keenan is young. Uh, he's a newbie to politics, which is a, a problem. People would like to see the mayor have some experience at governance. Uh, but he's young. He's been president of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and he's saying, I'm the real change. If you're tired of these people that have been around for a long time. He's a little confused about his platform at this point, and he's made some comments, and he's backtracking on some issues not to alienate the suburbs, which are key and important to, to, to this election. Um, and so really, the, the question that'll drive people to the polls really will be, who do I want for mayor? Do I want the guy who's, um, who's you know, getting up in age, but has experience, including at the mayoralty? Do I want a woman uh, who will bring a fresh perspective to leadership, who's been a leader and has proven has a proven track record in that? Or do I just want to throw caution to the wind and get a brand new guy in there who's not had any experience and hope for the best? I think that'll drive a fair mm. amount of votes uh, towards the uh, the uh, uh, the ballot uh, uh, box. However, however. What's going to be missed as we really talk about personalities, what's going to be missed is, do we want a city whose economic development has been as good as it's ever been over the last 25, 30 years? Right now, do we want to maintain that momentum? Uh, Do we want to really see encampments all over the place as many people are, are advocating? Do we want to see the police defunded? as uh, some of these progressive candidates, uh, including a couple who are on council currently, by the way, uh, would like to see the police defunded. Do we really want to see that? Do we want to see tiny houses in our downtown? And once you create these, will they ever go away? Um, by the way, for people who don't want to go into shelters, uh, and um, or can we help them in some other way? Uh, do we want to see our taxes rise in the suburbs? as they talk about eliminating area rating, which essentially means that if you don't have a service, you don't pay for it. But now some want to impose those taxes on the suburbs uh, in transit, even though they don't have the service. Do we really want to see the LRT built uh, because it's scheduled to be built when we have someone like Bob Rutina, who's against it, quit his own government uh, as a result of uh, funding that program? Uh, and who can best manage our tax dollars? I mean, these are all questions that I think Hamiltonians should consider, but they're going to get lost, and, and the media has a lot to do with this and how they cover that this race. They're going to get lost, I think, in the personality politics of the mayoralty. Okay, and and we we started a few moments ago by saying what could be. So if, if you you think there are some issues that should be, which one? Give me one or even two that could stick and could become one of the things that defines the mayoralty race that really becomes an issue that they rally around or they're forced to deal with? Well, um, so the, the LRT is a done deal. Uh, and I think that was the issue that uh, was settled last time when Fred won the uh, <clears throat> the mayoralty, if you recall, against Vito's Grow, who essentially ran on a stop the train platform. So that's a, a done deal. But the implementation of that is not. And, uh, and, the, and, and the funding, some funding of that, although 
the province and the feds have uh, said that they'll kick in a, a whack of money, billions of dollars we're talking about. Um, is that enough? As time is delaying things, our costs going to go up? And, uh, and um, will, will Hamilton taxpayers have to pony up some money towards this project? So the management of this issue is important, and I'll be looking to see how and what, how it's handled by the candidates and what they say about this issue. Uh, but also, in terms of experience and change, are they going to try to ride the coattails, which I think have dissipated, around change? Bob Bertina clearly is riding on, a, uh, on an experience. I'm the experienced guy. You can trust me at the, uh, uh, I'll, I'll have a firm grip uh, on the tiller, uh, and I'll guide this ship appropriately. And people are going to have to contrast that with the last time he was mayor. Things were not quite as smooth as, as you might be saying now. But he's a different man now, and he has gained some experience at the federal level as well. And Andrea, of course, is going to say, look, I've got the energy, I've got the drive. Uh, I, uh, I, she's not going to play the, the, the gender card, I don't think, but it's there plain for everybody to see. And she's going to talk about, you know, a spirit of getting the community moving forward uh, with her at the helm and working with the, collaboratively with, with all of uh, council. So I think they're going to play it uh, differently depending on who they are. And, of course, Keenan is going to talk about the fact that he's new, absolutely mm-hmm. brand new. He's not a retread from any party or any political uh, uh, endeavor before. Uh, and whether people buy that or not at the mayoralty remains to be seen. Uh, and, of course, they're going to have to tailor their, their pitch to the suburbs as well. The suburbs elect the mayor. When I won, I won overwhelmingly in the suburbs. I only lost the downtown ward, and so I got good support, but overwhelmingly in the suburbs. And, and the area and the issue of area rating and transit uh, is, is going to be important there. Uh, also, affordable housing. I mean, these are all themes that they're going to uh, talk about and, and pay some lip service to because uh, the levers that the municipal government has around affordable housing. And you wrote a great column, by the way, the other day, uh, where... It's almost a self-inflicted wound uh, by the um, by the uh, local uh, council that stopped uh, uh, you know growth outside of the urban boundary, and so it's either going to go up or it's going to intensify uh, development in these areas. And council doesn't seem to like that either because residents don't like that. So they've you know set themselves on the path of a of a solution around housing development uh, where. Uh, the solutions are not liked by the residents that they represent. Yeah. So, and when how- and Larry, when you talk about housing and transit area rating, to me, um, you know, I think we are going to hear a lot of discussion about those two things because they are important things. But I think when they talk about that, they may speak of housing units and bus service, and what a lot of people in the city hear because it's not those words are going to hear is okay, how is my neighborhood going to be affected and how are my taxes going to be affected yeah. by new bus service? Yeah. And it, those two things, to me, again, it's going to say housing and say transit, but it's going to be neighborhood and taxes that is going to be perhaps this Ab- election's big one. Absolutely. And and here's the problem, though. Um, as, as, as the councillors, and I'm talking about the councillors here, talk about these things in their ward, uh, the media is not going to cover them. The media, there's not enough media to cover every single race in four different, 14 different wards. 
and so they're going to they're going to mention things, highlights of things, and it's up to those running in opposition to make sure that the residents understand the connection between housing, transit, and mm-hmm. taxes um, in order to, to score political points because they're trying to win elections as well. And there are some vulnerable candidates. I mean, uh, candidates uh, in Ward 1 and Ward uh, 3, although uh, perceived to be um, you know, strong, uh, have to answer to their public about some of the positions they took uh, on exactly that development and and what it's doing to intensify uh, their areas and um, and if I were running against them, I'd certainly make an issue about that. Last thing, we got to run because we're short on time. But let me go with that last point you just made because I wanted to get to it, and you did a perfect segue there. You have run before. If you're running as a councillor or as a mayor or for mayor, do you want there to be? a really clear-cut issue. Is that a good thing because it clarifies and simplifies everything for people? Or is that too risky because you could fall on the wrong side? You want to have a whole bunch of things where you can just sort of dance around and obfuscate, and if you don't like the topic, just change it. Because last time you mentioned Vito Scro and Fred Eisenberger. They could not change the topic. They could talk about everything else they wanted to, and all anyone wanted to hear was LRT. So yeah. do you like that? Do you like that single focus or do you want to have an out every time you're running? Well, so you remember when I won my mayoralty, the big issue was the Red Hill Parkway, right? And uh, I was on the right side of that issue because I, I understood that Hamiltonians wanted to see that road built. And so I pushed that very, very hard. My opponent at the time um, was against that road and he paid the political price, even though he was far better known than I was at the time. Uh, so, so I guess it depends on where you stand on an issue. If the issue right now, for example, just use an example. The issue is, is encampments, um, that, that some of these candidates are supportive. Uh, I wouldn't want to be running pro encampment. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we have to be callous and, and disrespectful and unhelpful to people who are far less fortunate than most of us and are, are, are on the street for whatever circumstance, we need to get them some help. But the help needs to be appropriate, and it cannot turn our city into every open space in our city into an encampment. And I saw just today in our downtown where some poor woman was sleeping under a tree uh, right in the downtown. I'm assuming she had nowhere else to go. And, um, and this was, you know, afternoon. So we need to help people like that. But do we need to create these encampments everywhere? So if that's the, and my, my point being, if that's the question, the ballot box question that people are voting on, I wouldn't want to be on the side of supporting that. Uh, on the other hand, if the question was LRT as it was, or the Red Hill, and knowing that, that the majority of people want to see things move forward and built, uh, I certainly would be in favor of that and not against any of those things because um, and I remember saying to Mr. Scrow at the time, who was a bright man, uh, but I said, no, you're against this project. And yes, I know you're for all these other things, but this is going to, uh, this is, this issue is going to predominate the, the, uh, agenda. People want to see not what you're against. They want to see what you're for. And so each of the three mayoralty candidates, major, I know that there are others, but the major ones are going to not only have to explain what they bring to the table in terms of leadership, but what they're going to do for each of us around all of those major issues that will improve our lives. And that's going to be the winner. 
That is Larry DeAnne, former mayor, commentator, variety of other roles he plays around town. Larry, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. Thank you, Scott. All the best. We will be talking more about the election as we go forward, but um, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think? We've just been chatting about it. Do you think there is going to be one defining issue that takes over this election that is going to be the thing that we focus on? Or do you think it's going to be all over the place and just different people have different issues? I don't, I don't believe as of right now there is an LRT or a stadium or a Red Hill Creek Expressway in the mix. But what do you think? Radley at 900CHML.com. Let me know. We have to take a break. Back after this. Stay with us. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.